Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Raed Wake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast is intended for healthcare providers and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I would be interviewing experts about timeless and timely topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical care, allergy, sleep, and infectious disease. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Respiratory Exchange. My guest today is Dr. Peter Mazone. Dr. Mazone established and currently directs our lung cancer program in the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, which includes programs for lung cancer screening and nodule management. He's also the editor-in-chief of CHEST. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Mazone to talk to us, to us today about lung cancer screening. Peter, welcome. Thanks very much, Dr. Drake. Happy to be here. So, uh, Peter, let's start with the, with the basics. What is the difference between lung cancer screening and diagnostic testing? Yeah, I think that's very important to separate those two in your mind because it helps you to think about the benefits and harms differently. When you screen somebody, you're testing someone who has no symptoms or signs of the disease you're testing for. You're testing them because they have risk to develop or have that disease, but they're otherwise healthy. When you're doing a diagnostic test, someone's come to you with a problem, and so they're already not feeling well, and so there's a different balance of benefits and harms when you're testing. When you screen somebody, very few people benefit from that test. When we're screening for lung cancer, a group at high risk, you might find 1% of everybody you screen actually has a lung cancer. When you're doing diagnostic testing, you're hoping that that testing leads to an answer for most of the people that you're testing for. And, and in that sense, it's important to recognize that everybody is exposed to the potential harms when you're screening. So you got a healthy person and you're doing a test with a small but not insignificant potential for harm. So you have to keep that in mind. Oh, yeah, so you're using the same tests, it's just the purpose of the test is different. So this is why what you do with the outcome is different. Exactly. You might be willing to expose someone to more potential harm if they're feeling terrible and, and they're clearly sick. Here we have a healthy group coming you know, for, for our care. So it is different. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down to us. So uh, now that we know there is some small but uh, definite harm in, involved in screening, what is the proof that lung cancer screening really works? Yeah, and that's a great question too, particularly if you followed this field over time. You know, the earliest screening studies looked at chest x-ray or sputum cytology as screening tests. And they found that screen-detected cancers, when you treated them, you had better survival than if the cancer was detected outside of screening. But exactly the same number of people, whether you were screened or not, were dying of lung cancer. So the outcome you're looking for, the true benefit, is that fewer people die of the disease you're screening for, in this case, lung cancer. There was no evidence of a mortality benefit from chest x-ray or sputum cytology. So early on, when low-dose CT scans became available, we recognized you could find much smaller cancers, but the question remained, are we just going to find cancers that never needed to be found, or are we finding cancers that we cure and therefore prevent people from dying? The first evidence of that came from the National Lung Screening Trial published now a decade ago. 53,000 people at high risk 
half were screened with a low-dose CT, half with chest X-ray, and 20% fewer people died of lung cancer if they were screened with the CT. Follow-up to that, just a year or so ago, the Nelson study, about 15,000 individuals, low-dose CT versus no screening, same outcome, fewer people died of lung cancer. So bottom line is absolutely there's mortality benefit, there's benefit from screening, and, and this should now be considered standard of care. Yeah, now you mentioned some of the older screening methodologies, uh, sputum and x-ray. Uh, what we're talking here about is low-dose CT scan uh, for screening, correct? Exactly right. And, and the low-dose means a low-radiation dose, minimizing the risk of radiation to the patient by minimizing the radiation from that imaging test. So to take that a little bit further, so what are the potential harms? We know that it reduces mortality, improves outcomes. The question is, you know, with all screening methodologies, I think historically is, are you just doing a lead diagnosis bias? You diagnose things early, mm -hmm. so then you kind of get, but that's not the case with lung cancer screening. Right, and so that's the difference between survivor, you know, a survival as an outcome and mortality benefit. When you find a survival outcome that's better, it could be influenced by a bias. Lead time, you just find it earlier. Length time, you're finding less severe or aggressive disease or overdiagnosis. You're treating someone who never, ever needed to be treated. But the potential harms are very important to keep in mind. They're harms related to performing the test and then harms related to the evaluation of what the test found. So a lot of debate, but you're, you are delivering a little bit of radiation to your patient. And this is an annual scan and you often have to follow nodules and stuff. So the cumulative radiation dose throughout someone's adult life might lead to harm, particular radiation-induced cancers. Very difficult to predict that. Lots of fabulous studies, mathematical models have been done. In general, it's a recognized harm, but probably very, very small. The other harms come from what you find and what you do with them. In particular, lung nodules we find lung nodules in almost all of the scans we do. Most are very small, they're not cancers, and they require no additional follow-up. But probably about 20%, one in five of everyone we screen has a nodule that's large enough to require additional testing, follow-up with a scan in six months or in three months. And then a few percent of everybody that you screen has a nodule that looks worrisome enough to do more aggressive testing, PET imaging, bronchoscopy, needle biopsy, surgery. And some of those may be done on someone with a benign nodule. So you've taken someone with no symptoms, feeling well, you find this thing, and, and you end up doing an invasive test on them. So it's very, very important. High quality screening means you're able to manage the findings on that scan well and minimize those harms to maintain the proper balance of benefits and harms for our patients. That's important to know, and I think this is the reason why I think you and other leaders in this field have specific criteria for who's eligible for screening and who's not. You just, just go around uh, scanning people. So can you tell us more about the uh, eligibility criteria, who should be screened and who may maybe who should not? Absolutely. So you want to screen a group at high enough risk of us finding a lung cancer, that you're going to benefit enough of that group to justify the small but real harms. If we screened anyone 
you know, never smoker, no matter the age, you'll find more cancers, but you'll also have to screen a whole lot more people to find that one cancer. And all of those people will be exposed to those potential harms. So we follow the evidence of the studies. The National Lung Screening Trial enrolled individuals at high risk based on age and smoking history. Same for the Nelson trial. And then some very sophisticated modeling has been done by the guideline producing organizations such as the United States Preventative Services Task Force to suggest a risk group where the benefits and harms are going to be optimized. You're going to help as many people as possible while minimizing those harms. Those recommendations were just updated within the last year to expand the eligibility criteria. So currently, age 50 to 80, you've smoked at least 20 pack years, and you've been someone who's smoked cigarettes within the last 15 years. That group is currently screen eligible. The only subtle difference, Medicare doesn't have to follow the USPSTF recommendations, and their upper age limit is just slightly lower. They're 77 instead of 80. Oh, yeah. So to me, it's always a good sign when a test or a screening test is expanded. That means it's already working. Now let's see how it can help more people. Is that fair to say that's the case here? I think that's fair to say is recognize that the initial criteria, which started at age 55 and were 30 pack years, if everybody got screened who met those criteria, maybe 30 to 40% of all lung cancers could have been found through screening. With this expanded criteria, you're now you know, closing in on half to a little more than half of everybody who has a cancer. So I think that that's very good. The other thing that gave maybe a little more confidence in expanding those criteria is we now have a decade of experience in running screening programs and running them well and minimizing the harms so if there were no harms, you could just screen everybody, right? So now, uh, in, you know, with improved care, better programs available, there's more confidence that we're going to still help people with these criteria. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful to know. I know you've spent a lot of time and energy uh, building our lung cancer screening program here, and I maybe hopefully you will share with us, with our audience, how you did that and what does it take to establish a lung cancer screening program? Yeah, I, I like the question a lot because you used the word program because, you know, initially you look at the study and say, okay, the, we just need to be able to do these scans. Well, screening is not just a test here. It is a program. And what's most important is that the programs are designed to provide really high quality care. You're screening the right individuals. You're using proper imaging techniques. You're talking to patients about the benefits and harms, letting them make informed decisions about whether to participate. You have systems in place to manage the findings from the scan, whether it be the lung nodules we talked about or anything else that's imaged on the chest. You have systems in place to help patients adhere to follow-up recommendations and to the annual scan. In general, the design of the program only matters in that you have to meet each of those components of high quality screening that I listed. And in general, the design can be divided into a centralized program or a decentralized program. Centralized means a provider refers someone to the program and the program does the rest. They talk to the patient, do the scan, interpret it and manage the findings. And decentralized would be the entire opposite. 
know, the primary provider talks to the patient, identifies the right patients, and orders the test, and then manages all the findings. One system isn't necessarily right or wrong, depends where you're practicing and what your resources are. But what's critical is that each of those components is present. In general, in the literature, it's been shown that a centralized program is more likely to screen the proper population. They have better adherence to follow-up recommendations in annual screening. And so we certainly favor centralized screening, but we also have to recognize that every place that has patients eligible doesn't have the same resources to develop that. In that situation, I'd suggest you know, connecting or combining with larger uh, health systems uh, regionally or, or nationally to help make sure that you're checking all the boxes, that you have all these components in place. Our own program started decentralized a decade ago. We learned quickly that not everybody who was being screened was screened properly. Results were shared in uh, a way that wasn't timely enough and, and some worrisome findings weren't managed well. So we quickly adopted a centralized program and we've been very happy with those results. Yeah, it looks like you overcame a challenge early on with the centralized versus decentralized. What are the other challenges you had to overcome in order to establish uh, this very successful program? It's been a, a real education and, and a fun one, for sure. You know, we, we grow as a program and we're continuing to grow despite being uh, 10 years plus old. And some of the challenges you may not even think about is, well, you need providers to see these patients. You need a place for those providers to practice. You need an office space. You need schedulers to grow to be able to get people in. You need uh, communication tools to make sure all these patients know about the results and what to do. You need a tracking system to make sure that if a patient doesn't show up for an appointment, we know about it and we can follow up with them. So these, these have all been operational challenges that have been fun to try to overcome in order to see more and more patients while maintaining that quality. You also have a referring base of primary care providers that you need to have a great relationship with and make it easy for them to refer patients to you. Uh, systems that are built to help remind them when they're seeing someone in their busy clinics, they've got 15 minutes to talk about 10 issues, that they're not going to forget that this person's screen eligible. So use of the electronic health record and practice advisories and other things that can be built in to help that population. We also know that uptake is slow nationally. Uh, we are proud of the uptake locally, but still can do better. And so finding ways to reach patients who may not see their primary care provider over the course of a couple of years, you know, so using our electronic health record to send reminders to patients or identify patients using all of the IT tools available to reach the right group has been fun but challenging. So you mentioned the electronic health record a couple of times. Tell me more about how that was helpful or complicated things or simplified things for you as you establish this program? Yeah, it was a big lesson, and I'm glad you asked. Uh, you know, our program was growing at a fairly reasonable pace. We had, you know, maybe 100 or so a month patients coming in, and we, we started to expand to sites across our health system in the region. And it seemed to have plateaued. And we, at that time, 
we're permitted to put what we call in our electronic health record, a best practice advisory in place. So anyone whose age and smoking history looks like they'd qualify for screening based on what's entered in the record, this advisory shows up for the provider. Overnight, we had four times more consults to the point we couldn't manage them. We, we hadn't grown enough yet. So we had to shut off the best practice advisory for about six months while we grew our team, trained them, turned it back on, and the same thing happened. And now we're at, you know, 500 or so patients per month. That was the biggest boon to uptake of screening for us was the use of that tool. Yeah, I remember that time we had to kind of uh, get our resources together and build up scheduling, etc. That was, uh, I remember those, that was a challenging time. But I'm Yeah, glad, uh, it was yeah. fun, but a challenge. Uh, another thing actually that, especially in the last couple of years happened with COVID and uh, virtual visits, did the proliferation of virtual visit help or hurt or a combination for lung cancer screening? Yeah, I think a combination. Early on at the time, it was the only thing that allowed lung cancer screening to continue. So there was a mandated shared decision-making visit mandated by Medicare. And so we had to meet with the patient and educate them benefits and harms and so on. And that mandate was for in-person visits. It didn't include virtual video telephone visits at all. And as the pandemic started, fortunately, those rules changed. We had to shut our program down for about two and a half months or so. And when it reopened, we did most of those visits through, you know, telehealth. They're challenging, you know, in the face-to-face -face visits, you meet someone, you develop a relationship, you show them a video we developed about benefits and harms. And those things are not quite the same when done through telehealth, but it allowed us to at least still run the program, engage with patients. As things have opened up, we've learned how to see patients in person safely, uh, you know, over the last 18 months and so on. Most of the patients choose to come in person, but it's good that we still have the option to do telehealth visits. Um, you can imagine for individuals who don't live close to a site, uh, that, that it can really help to bring people into the program to be able to offer these visits from a distance. Yeah, I can say this improves your uh, outreach to people who Absolutely. would otherwise not be able uh, to come. So we're talking about growth. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on like the growth in the eligible population, but also in how you are doing as a program to respond to that uh, growth in eligibility and the number of patients we can see. Yeah, so we're working in two areas of growth right now. And one is, as I mentioned, the eligibility criteria have expanded. There's estimates that that increases the number of eligible individuals by about 80%. So programs can expect perhaps an 80% growth on that alone. The other is by our use of direct outreach to patients through the electronic health record and through marketing to other providers. And, and so we think we'll be able to double our volumes over the next year or two based on both of those. To do so, from the lessons we learned, we have to make sure we have enough providers. We have to make sure that the uh, primary care community is aware of these changes, that we market appropriately, that we make it easy for scheduling to occur. We've moved scheduling from a centralized team to be distributed more across the pool of regional schedulers as well. We've used tools within the MyChart system and the electronic health record for self-scheduling of patients. 
in ways to remind patients. So we've uh, worked with our space management teams. We've worked, you know, with the uh, the scheduling teams to make sure that this was going to be uh, smooth this time. Wonderful. So uh, one thing that I thought of as you were saying this is the awareness of this, like in your mind among the community, but also the primary care docs. How widespread or not so widespread is the awareness about the importance of lung cancer screening? Do you have a sense from your experience? Yeah, I think it's improving, but it's not universal. I think particularly when changes are made to eligibility criteria, it's on us to really educate our provider community, uh, market properly to patients. You know, this is standard of care and and this is uh, the group that, that should be coming our way. So uh, I think it's improving, but but we still have a ways to go. We work with the outreach team from our cancer center here too to try to reach into communities that may not have the same access to screening or, or care that others do. So we want to make sure that, that this tool is being provided in an equitable way to anyone who's eligible. Wonderful. This has been uh, amazing, very informative. Can we pivot a little bit now and look to the future? You know, I know you are involved in several studies and looking at the future of lung cancer screening. How does it look like from where you sit? Yeah, it's an exciting time to be in this space, really. Again, it, it all goes back to that balance of benefits and harms. You know, it's favorable with the current eligible population, but everybody gets screened and maybe we'll only find half the, the lung cancers still. So there's people getting lung cancer outside the eligible group. Uptake of screening has been relatively slow. Adherence to annual follow-up is not ideal. And so it provides a lot of opportunities to keep improving how we're identifying folks and how we're managing programs. Some of the exciting areas that are, are coming up, there's exciting ways to predict who might benefit most from screening. These are through clinical benefit prediction tools, risk prediction tools, and also through the development of molecular biomarkers, blood tests, breath tests, and so on, that may help you to identify an individual who has an early stage lung cancer without the potential downsides of having to scan and find all kinds of things on them. Uh, Also maybe provide that sort of tool to a, a broader group, more outreach. So very exciting times for other tests to enter the screening algorithm. The other that uh, has really come along is population management systems, ways to manage big groups of patients so you're providing the best care possible, communicating with patients, making sure they're coming to their their follow-up testing. So these population management tools are also going to make a big impact. Wonderful. That's exciting. So uh, as we wrap up, Peter, I'm trying to uh, share with our audience a couple of takeaway points that I got from your uh, discussion here. One is really that uh, lung cancer screening now is standard of care. It's not research. It's not experimental. This is the way we approach lung cancer now, like colonoscopy, mammography. This is just part of what we do now for eligible individuals. Also, that, that the reason for that is that we have improved outcomes. We know that it improves mortality and improves outcomes uh, overall. But the key thing that I picked up on is that it's not just simply getting a CT scan. This really, you have to be engaged in a program to look at before eligibility, after follow-up. It's not just simply getting uh, a CT scan. And if you're going to do it uh, or if you're going to have your patients go through it, you better have a, an established program that can uh, do all these things. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? 
No, I think you hit the the high points. This is this is standard of care. You please be referring your patients to high quality screening programs. This isn't just a test; it's a program, and there's a lot of growth of high quality programs to refer to. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Peter. And thank you all for uh, listening to our uh, podcast today. Uh, again, my guest is um, Dr. Peter Mazone, who is the director of the lung cancer program that includes lung cancer screening and lung nodule management. He's also the editor-in-chief of CHEST. And I'm your host, Raid Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange. For more stories and information from Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic Lungs or follow me at Triad Wake MD. Thank you.